0: Welcome everybody, I'm Richard Krause and I hope you're feeling happy, healthy and safe. It's a big show, so let's get right at it. Later on, we'll meet actor, musician and writer Cliff Cardinal. We'll talk about life on the road as an actor, why he'd rather stay home and his new show, The Land Acknowledgement or As You Like It, which begins in March at the CAA Theatre in Toronto. In it, he gives a powerful and stark performance with his Unvarnished Truth on the state of the reconciliation process in Canada and the relationship between the Indigenous community and the settlers. We'll also meet Zale Mednick. He's a successful ophthalmologist who, just at the cusp of embarking on his career, was suddenly overcome with self-doubt about the path he'd chosen for himself. Realizing that his preconceptions might be misleading him, Zell set out to explore many of his preconceptions in a podcast, well, it's called Preconceived. Today we'll talk about his podcast and his new book, Preconceived, Challenging the Preconceptions in Our Lives. First though, let's get to know Lindsay Wong. She is the author of the critically acclaimed memoir, The Woo Woo, How I Survived Ice Hockey, Drug Raids, Demons, and My Crazy Chinese Family, which was a 2019 Canada Reads finalist. Her new book, Please Tell Me Pleasant Things About Immortality, is a collection of 13 horror stories, all of which tour the Chinese Canadian experience. Here's Lindsay Wong. Tell me a little bit about where the inspiration for some of these stories came from. Uh, because I assumed uh, that they were um, complete fiction, but they're not. They're stories from your family's history woven through them a little bit. So tell me about mixing, I guess, the fact, the fiction, and the folklore.
1: Mm-hmm. That's a really interesting question. I'm always thinking about family history, um, maybe because of a background in nonfiction, um, I had a grandmother who survived the rape of Nanking, King, and she always told us stories about having to bind her breasts um, to avoid being raped when the Japanese invasion came. And, of course, you know, not much is known about that. So I couldn't write a memoir. Um, so I've taken some of that family mythology, um, as well as my uncle. He was actually in a concentration camp. He escaped Vietnam and they put him in a concentration camp in Hong Kong. And so many of these family stories um, became the basis for Tell Me Pleasant Things About Immortality. Um, I'm always thinking about mythology. I'm thinking about folklore. um, And I think this is really just a hybrid um, work in many um, ways.
0: In what way did folklore and mythology and stories like that, uh, I guess speculative stories like that, Uh, In what way did they play a part in your early years? Were they always something that you were gravitated towards?
1: I think so. Um, In, I think there's a, we have like Maxine Kingston. She always talks about um, talk story and um, it's something that we do. We, you know, take family mythology, we we weave in, um, you know, different folklores and it becomes part of the legacy, I think, um, in surviving Um, So often, you know, for women of color and marginalized people, we have to tell ourselves story to survive, right? Otherwise, you can't get through it. And I think, for me, having that sense of story, that family legacy, but also having, you know, a sense of humor about it, um, that's the only way to survive. It becomes like a coping mechanism in many, many ways, I think
0: your other work has been uh as a memoirist and there is some young adult fiction uh in there as well and you say that you found that writing this story collection which is for adults uh very difficult or really difficult is the actual quote uh tell me why
1: I think there's this thing about the short story it's so condensed and so concise um whereas you know memoir requires you know, being honest. But I think being honest is a lot easier than being concise for me. Um, Every word, every image has to be perfect. And in a novel, you can, you know, meander um, in in so many ways. It's, um, you know, it's exercising restraint. And I don't think I'm a restrained person.
0: (laughs) It is true, though. It's like a short film. It's like Mm -hmm. anything. Uh, I I do think that less is always more. It's easier for a writer, I think, to write 3,000 words about a situation than to write 200 words about a situation because you just have to be so much more um, uh, uh, adept at painting a scene and and you making sure that every single word is exactly what you want it to be.
1: Exactly, right? It's just what you put in what you take out. Um, And it's it's really difficult to choose
0: when you were creating this this uh, collection of stories, um, did it start off as a, a collection of stories or was it one story and you went, oh, I, I kind of like the direction in which this went. Let's see if I can do more of these.
1: So I wrote a lot of this when the woo-woo was being rejected. Um, they always say, you know, have a backup project. Yeah. Um, and so this was it. Um, I wrote Wreck um, Beach first. Um, I was, I'd moved to New York and... You know, I was thinking about Vancouver a lot and then I wrote Furniture um, and then I think, you know, when you're being rejected and you're thinking about, you know, what else can I do? Um, and it turned out that, you know, I was actually writing a collection of immigrant horror stories and about, you know, Chinese people and the diaspora. Um, sometimes the themes just come out to you after you amass, you know, 13 stories and you can link them all together.
0: You're listening to Lindsay Wong on The Richard Krause Show. Her new book, Please Tell Me Pleasant Things About Immortality, is available now wherever fine books are sold. It is interesting that you said that you uh, wrote it while your book, the woo-woo, was being rejected because it's, I think, very difficult to, in the face of another rejection email to go, okay, that's another one. And now I've got to go and continue doing the thing that's getting me rejected (laughs) on a, on a fairly regular basis. It takes a little bit of spirit to be able to do that.
1: I think I've always been a very stubborn person Um, or at least, you know, I need writing. I need it to, to do something with that energy. Um, Because what else are you supposed to do? You can sit and cry in a corner or you can just, you know, go and, and try again and be very stubborn about it.
0: So let's talk about some of the um, the manifestations, the, the 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 folklore come to life in these stories. Uh, are there some of these of these uh, characters that are more interesting to you than others? Or, or tell me a little bit about some of them, and then we'll uh, I guess we'll delve into it a little bit.
1: Yeah. So I've always been interested in the Halu-Ching, which are nine tailed fox demons. Um, they go around apparently eating people. And I always thought that was kind of weird and hilarious and scary. Um, And then, you know, thinking about Chinese folklore and making it contemporary to the reader, um, what is also scary and dangerous, um, you know, I'm thinking about sorority girls. So I, I meshed those together. Um, And so for me, it's always been a process of taking the old and making it new. And, and hopefully, you know, readers will get that sense, right? Because what is more dangerous than a sorority girl who wants to eat people? they do
0: (laughs) yeah maybe not literally but certainly figuratively yeah
1: yeah yeah metaphor is important right
0: absolutely yeah 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 and uh so that's one example uh from the book and when you when you hit on something like that Uh, what's the, what is the process? Does it come to you in a dream? Does it, is it sitting in front of your keyboard and working it out? Is it sitting at Starbucks having a coffee? And then you're like, oh yeah, that's a good idea.
1: It depends. Um, Sometimes I have a lot of nightmares. I'll, I think um, a lot of my process is, oh, this is a terrifying nightmare. And, and then that's why I think a lot of the stories follow dream logic. Um, And then other times I will be, in a place and that will inspire me um i I remember doing a residency in nebraska city where um, you had to walk 10 miles on a deserted highway to buy groceries. And for some reason, in minus 1 weather, I decided I wanted ice cream. So <laughs> I walked 10 miles. You must have really ice wanted
0: ice cream at that yeah, point. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I mean,
1: I like ice cream. Yeah. Um, and then I walked back again, and it just felt like the apocalypse to me. And that's where I became um, inspiration between, um, behind think- Sinking Houses, right? Mm-hmm. Where a mail-order bride gets sent to Nebraska City And the world ends. She literally brings it with her, Um, and so I think a lot of it is through place or feeling or emotion, and then I expand on that. It's really just a mixing of everything I see or hear or um, you know think about.
0: Is there any significance that there are thirteen stories in this? It's a number that a lot of people think of as bad luck. Not everybody, but some. Uh, Is there some significance to the number thirteen?
1: Mm-hmm. I think there's a, it's, it's a Western thing, right? It's a very, it's a number of bad luck and horror. And I think I wanted to, you know, acknowledge that. Um, because, you know, even though I write about Chinese mythology and Chinese horror and, and ghosts, um, I'm still very much um, from the West, right? So it's a, it's a testament to that horror collection. Yeah.
0: And are you working on something else right now? Do you have several projects going? How does it work for you uh, in a day-to-day way?
1: Yeah, I'm always working on things. I have like a million drafts. Um, I currently have a novel um, on contract, so I have to finish that. Yeah. Um, and it's really about Demon Bride. So um, after I graduated from Columbia, I was really broke and someone from high school reached out to me and said, do you want to be um, maid of honor at my wedding? And I was like, sure, why not? I don't know you that well, but you know, I've nothing better to do. And um, you know, it's being a maid of honor is indentured servitude for a year. And so I made her a demon bride um, in the novel. And then someone ran her over in the parking lot because she was really mean. I, I didn't do it. I swear oh. it wasn't me.
0: In real life, um, and, you're talking about real in life. In real
1: life, yeah. So I tend to draw on a lot of weird things that have happened to me, any anecdotes, and then I, I flesh it out, and and that becomes a metaphor. She could be a demon. We don't know. Um,
0: is, is she okay? <laughs>
1: Um, she, her hip is totally fine. She didn't die or anything.
0: Good. So, Good.
1: It was, Good. Um, it was, it well, was
0: a Demons heal yeah. quickly. That's the thing. That was Lindsay Wong on The Richard Krause Show. Her new book, Please Tell Me Pleasant Things About Immortality, is available now wherever fine books are sold. My guest in this segment is Zale Mednick. He's a successful ophthalmologist who came to podcasting just as he was launching his career in medicine. Early on, he was overcome with self-doubt about the path that he had chosen for himself. Realizing that his preconceptions might be misleading him, Zell sent out to explore many of his preconceptions in a podcast called, What Else? Preconceived. Now, today we talk about his podcast and his new book, Preconceived, Challenging the Preconceptions in Our Lives. Zell joined me via Zoom. Congratulations uh, on the podcast and the book. Uh, no, let's talk you. a little bit about, about how you arrived uh, at podcasting because you're not a broadcaster by uh, training, you're a doctor, you're an ophthalmologist. So tell me how you make the leap from studying people's eyes to uh, getting inside their heads on a podcast.
2: I like that, going from, from their eyes to inside their heads. Nobody, nobody's phrased it like that before, okay. I like that. <laughs> Uh, Well, when I was was younger, I had a lot of different interests, and medicine for me wasn't an obvious thing that I wanted to choose until a little bit later on. It's funny, when I say a little bit later on, I mean like grade 12, which is kind of when you have to kind of decide that you want Mm -hmm. to go into medicine. But I was an actor when I was younger. I liked public speaking, and I had some more creative interests. I really enjoyed traveling. And when I was deciding what to do for a career, I kind of thought to myself, you know, I'm going to I want to do something that gives me some versatility and there were a few different ways to go about that one was to choose something that was a little more artsy and creative and one was to choose something a little bit more stable predictable and that was medicine for me so i went on this long haul obviously i went through my undergrad med school residency and fellowship but as i was coming to an end of that i said to myself I promised myself when I finished medicine that I wasn't going to just be a nine to five doctor. Not that there's anything wrong with that, but that just wasn't for me. I wanted to make sure that there were outlets for me to engage that more creative side of my life. So I sat down. I remember I had this big list. Some things were extremely unrealistic, like becoming a screenwriter in addition to being a doctor. Some were a little bit more realistic, like starting a podcast, something that I could just do on my own, pretty low low threshold for what it takes to start it. And uh, I decided that that would be a good way for me to blend my life as a doctor with something a little more creative.
0: Yeah. And that's, I guess, what I had read about you is that you had some doubts about the whole thing. And that's why you wanted to work them out a little bit in the podcast form. So you wanted to be able to speak with experts and people from all walks of life and all manner of jobs and just figure out what made them tick as a way of putting yourself I guess or making yourself feel like perhaps you had made the right decision is that exactly
2: exactly so as I was kind of going through this I don't want to say crisis but going through some of these existential questions on my own of what do I want to do with my life because we go through this pathway in life of You're born, obviously, and then you have a certain type of education. You usually have a college experience or you work, you have a monogamous relationship, you get married. As I was going through those points in my life, especially when I was finishing my training and embarking on my career, I wanted to question, which of these choices am i doing because that's what society dictates that's the preconception that's the status quo and which of these are decisions that are truly authentic to myself and there's nothing wrong with following the status quo there's nothing wrong with that but for me this topic seemed congruent with where i was at in my own life in terms of questioning what i wanted to do and
0: questioning the world around me and you're still a practicing doctor we should let people know that you're you you haven't given up medicine completely for podcasting and going on this i guess existential exploration uh, but you still practice do you go in every day
2: yeah i go yeah. in yeah i mean i'd be i'd be pretty nuts if i did all that training and decided to drop <laughs> all of it i only do um, it two
0: hours a week yeah it's yeah. Yeah,
2: yeah so no i do i do i practice four to five days a week i try to give myself about Initially, it was about a day a week to do the podcast. Now right. it's kind of half a day, and I, I work at nights and on the weekend on it. And uh, But yeah, I, I do practice full-time as a doctor, and this is a, a side hobby that's turned into... Uh,
0: it sounds cliche, but a passion project that I really enjoy. You're listening to Zell Mednick on The Richard Krauss Show. His podcast, Preconceived, is available at preconceivedpodcast.com. And his book, Preconceived, Challenging the Preconceptions in Our Lives, is available at amazon.ca and indigo.ca. You call it a non-advice show. So you're not looking to change people's minds, really. You're just saying, this is out here, drink it in.
2: I think it would be a bit hypocritical of me to try to change people's minds, right? Sometimes the preconceptions are misconceptions. Sometimes the preconceptions are true. Sometimes I'm coming into it with a different preconception, probably, Mm -hmm. than the audience members are. I think the point of this, when I think, the point of this show is really just to be more open, to be open to concepts and topics that you might have had a closed book on in your mind before to be empathetic and to see oh you know what there's a whole different side to things and maybe i don't agree with it but now i understand it there's that element and then there's the element of just encouraging people to be more conscious about the thoughts that about the decisions they make in life like that paradigm i told you earlier about going through life and how you want to carve your own path i do find that in the media these days and in podcasts and books, there's a lot of advice being given, and sometimes it's overwhelming. And sometimes everybody's an expert on something. And I mean, I I think that's a good thing. We need experts, but I think there's enough advice being given out there. And for me, I I don't have any credentials to be giving advice, really. I'm just somebody who's asking questions and letting people have the information so they can form their own opinions.
0: And the proceeds from the book go towards the Pencils for Kids charity. Uh, And how are you connected with them? And why did you, or perhaps if you're not, why did you choose to give the proceeds from the book uh, to Pencils for Kids? Well,
2: the conne- the connection's quite direct. My mom my mom runs the charity. Actually, it's called Pencils know. for Kids. <laughs> full disclosure, but that also means that I, I know where the money's going, and I know that all the money is going to exactly where it needs to go. I think over ninety seven percent of the proceeds go directly to uh, the cause. She started this organization in two thousand five or two thousand six when she heard that there was a classroom where thirty kids in Niger, one of the poorest countries in Africa, was thirty kids were sharing one pencil. So since then over the past 15 plus years she's developed kindergartens there, libraries, agricultural programs, sewing programs, and in particular all the proceeds from this book are going to help build new kindergartens out of cement. There was a, t- a tragedy a couple of years ago where the kindergartens which were not made of cement, they all burnt down and the kids in a whole classroom died as it burnt down. Mm-hmm. So there were no kindergartens, and obviously the decision was then made to only build kindergartens out of cement. So all the proceeds are going towards, towards that. How
0: did you choose the stories that would be in the book?
2: So I wanted a variety. I mean, to be honest, it's tough to convince people to come down and and, and write it. So some people were more open to that than others, and they're all original pieces. So it's not just a transcript from the podcast. Yeah. I went back to guests who I thought would be interesting, and I said, What do you think is the greatest preconception in regards to the topic that we spoke about? And can Mm -hmm. you address that either in a story or an essay or some thought piece? I wanted a collection that was diverse, like the podcast episodes are. So I wanted ones that kind of walked you through those stages of life. So some are about childhood, some are about the nature of love, sex, and relationships. Some are about older age and dying, and some are about the decision to become a parent. So walking through that stage in life, and others are about society and culture. So um, Joel Bakan, who's a Canadian who wrote the book, The Corporation and the New Corporation, those movies, um, that's an example of one that's society and culture, had ones on pets, uh, a section on animals. So under that, there's the pet paradox, veganism, dinosaurs, so it's, it's a real big Big array. I wanted it to cover cover the gamut, kind of like the podcast does.
0: What's the biggest preconception about ophthalmologists?
2: <laughs> oh, that's a good one. Nobody's asked me that. I don't know if I should even answer that. That might get me
0: into cold waters. I'll plead. I'll plead the fifth, I guess. All right. <laughs> that was Zale Mednick on The Richard Krauss Show. His podcast, Preconceived, is available at PreconceivedPodcast.com. And his book, Preconceived Challenging the Preconceptions in Our Lives, is available at Amazon.ca and Indigo.ca. My guest in this segment is actor, musician, and writer Cliff Cardinal. If you happen to find yourself in Toronto over the next little while, check out his provocative new show, which is a radical retelling of William Shakespeare's As You Like It. Called the Land Acknowledgement, or as you like it to show, is the unvarnished truth about the state of the reconciliation process this country's been attempting for the last few decades. When it debuted in 2021, audiences said it was, quote, essential viewing, a surprising, powerful, thrilling, and moving piece of theatre, that will never be forgotten. Cliff Cardinal, join me via Zoom to talk about the show. This is the the second mounting of this show. Was this something that built up over your habit of getting up every day and writing 2000 words and uh, working out your ideas that way? Is that how this show kind of developed for you?
3: No, this show happened because Chris Abraham called me and asked if I would be interested in responding creatively to the idea of a land acknowledgement. Mm-hmm. And I said no. <laughs>
0: <laughs> and what changed your mind?
3: He said he'd, he'd pay me.
0: <laughs> well, you know what? That's as good a reason as any uh, for that. So um, you you start there, uh, and the show covers much more than that. Now, the the couple of years uh, before the pandemic. Uh, were years that that terrible, upsetting news happened um, regarding the indigenous community, the residential schools, and that sort of thing. It, did that fuel, in any part, the writing of this?
3: Uh, yeah, it it, it did. Um, it really, it happened uh, during the the writing process, or it, the the first school at Camloops broke mm-hmm. as part of the writing process, and so it really, uh, really let us know why we were doing it.
0: When something like that happens and you discover, I don't know, the, you know, the reason why this isn't your first play, you've got a, a number of shows under your belt, um, what kind of sense of purpose does that give you? It has to light a fire.
3: Yeah, absolutely. Um, and I go into it a bit in the show, but mm-hmm. when it first happened, I was just hit with tons of questions. You know, all, all the, the, the the terrible facts of what, would, what would it, it would be if there were, you know, 7,000 murdered children. And um, you know, I've read the articles about um you know, the wonky radar detection and and mm. you don't know, you know no bodies have been uncovered, but it it's it really just makes it seem like um you know we we weren't supposed to be here, I was supposed to be dead, uh but we're still here and um and we should we should laugh about it, and we should go to the theater and we should um we should come together.
0: Well, you say that uh, your previous work and and I want to know if this show is would be included in this quote uh, is theater the way I love theater funny sad and hopeful would you apply that to this show?
3: I I would but I'm pretty outside you know so mm. the things that I like are are a bit are a bit weird and um, I think that a lot of people came to the show and didn't feel hope they felt anger. And uh, that's, a, that's okay too.
0: Yeah. I mean, I think as long as you get a response, uh, it doesn't really matter. Well, I suppose it does matter a little bit. But it, 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 a response is what you're looking for, whether it's happiness or sadness. And as an artist, I don't think that you can ever really completely understand or know what the reaction from an audience will be.
3: Yeah, you're right. You're, you're, you're absolutely right. Uh, about me anyway. It seems Chris Abraham has a pretty good idea of what the audience is going to think. But
0: <laughs> Well, it, it was his idea, from what I understand, uh, to kind of wrap this around as you like it uh, and, and look back to Shakespeare. Uh, and the quote that I have from him is he says, I wanted to invite Cliff to challenge the centrality of Shakespeare in our conversation about what theatre actually is. What does that mean?
3: Well, when I do shows, uh, I, I do, do a show called Huff, which is a hit play. It won two Doras, and we get presentations all over the world. And when I go do a show, um, I have to have this stupid conversation with the artistic director, where they come around and say, "Oh, it was really great, but it didn't make as much money as we'd hoped." Yeah. You know, because I'm competing with a two thousand year, know, year, year old, you know, two thousand year old franchises or four um, hundred year old franchises. "Mamma Mia" was next door. You know, it's like, yeah. I, yeah, people didn't see the the show about, you know, um, indigenous kids who abuse solvents and are at high risk of suicide. So, you know, yeah, I, I can't stand Shakespeare. Mm. I just think it's it's really it's really boring. It's like um, it's like it's like taking MDMA. I wouldn't pay for it, but sometimes it's free.
0: You're listening to Cliff Cardinal on The Richard Krauss Show. Find out more about his new show, The Land Acknowledgement, or As You Like It at Mervish.com. This show really ultimately probably doesn't have that much to do with uh, As You Like It, but it was a starting point. Is that right? In terms of uh, the relationship, in in terms of of As You Like It, it asks the, the viewer, I think, to kind of consider. The relationship to the land at, at certain points within the show and i guess that's the starting point here
3: well no the starting point was the land acknowledgement and mm-hmm. when we got into it you know chris came up with that idea and he realized that the people who would self-select to see the land acknowledgement show were already on board right you know they're, they're already you know allies or whatever and so you call it william shakespeare then everybody's going to show up we had rich people showing up to a cliff cardinal show it's the wildest thing <laughs>
0: one of the reviews that i saw for the show uh in its 2021 run uh said that uh the reviewer was sitting behind the people that the theater was named for which i thought was kind of an interesting comment on something i'm not sure what but i thought it was kind of an interesting comment
3: yeah the people are really comfortable in these in these theaters you know you you go and you, you they sit with their in their seat with their name on it because they donated money and and uh, we took all that away from them. You know, we we took the privilege right out of their hands for a day.
0: For a day. You came from a a theater background, though, um, that uh, is opposite to that. Uh, I'm thinking of video cabaret. Uh, I think in grade 10, from what I understand, you discovered at the back room with the Cameron Tavern, uh, this new kind of theater, video cabaret that was happening. So has creating art always been kind of a way for you to express yourself?
3: I, I dropped out of high school when I was 15. And I wandered into the back of this bar, the video cabaret. And I just sat there. And Michael, the director, came and told me, he said, if you're asked to do anything, best to do it. Otherwise, stay out of the way.
0: Right, get out of so, here. Yeah.
3: yeah, so that was my 10th grade year. I just watched these master actors uh, perform Canadian history. Yeah. And uh, Deanne Taylor, who is the artistic co-director of the company, became a, a serious mentor of mine. It is, it is not, it is very much not the kind of... Uh, Iconoclastic sort of things that we're doing with the the Land Acknowledgement show. I I don't know if Deanne would have liked it very much because, um, well, Deanne loves plays. She loves Shakespeare, you know, old, uh, dead, dead white man, dead white writer. It's not an insult to Deanne. You know, these people dedicated their lives to play, you know, turning people on, earning people's money and and having them come back. And there's nothing wrong with that, you know? people who spent their their entire lives dedicated to the theater and then in the last few years during the pandemic people started getting fired for not being you know allies of of indigenous culture or or, you know other people and i i didn't i didn't think that was really fair because you know well maybe it's fair
0: (laughs) i i think that shakespeare's uh comedies often have as much to do with tragedy as they do with comedy there is a great deal of tragedy that you uh portray and talk about in the show how do you find a balance to make sure that that works and that it stays um compelling for an audience or is that something that isn't as important to you because i've had actors tell me as long as i like what i'm doing that's enough
3: uh well i'm also a writer Mm. So I do have a certain responsibility to keep the audience safe. Yeah. Um, if you do, a, you know, a terrible show where it's really dark and ugly and there's no hope at the end, you mm. know, people, people get into fights. You know, they, they are couples bicker, people get into car accidents when you leave the theater. You right. know, you have to you have to take care of your audience. That being said, it's like I think of it like uh, like a fight scene where you try to you try to frame the fight scene for about 70% of the audience. And then the people who are too far out, they see that you, the sword missed by two feet and everything. Right, right. So, but, and, and who knows if it worked? but um, it, it was very much a, a process of stand up comedy where you go and you try it and you go, oh, well, that didn't work. There were some lonely nights in that show. You know?
0: Really?
3: Yeah. Cause I don't, I'm, I'm a funny guy, but I'm not like a comedian. I haven't, I've spent zero hours and I did this show where no one laughed. No one laughed. It's just, just darkness. Just, you know. And um, I was driving home and I saw a a poster of a comedian that I don't like very much. You know, he's not like he's not Richard Pryor, George Carlin. So he's not you know, he's not one of mine. Right.
0: Yeah. Yeah.
3: And I felt so ashamed. I felt so small to go and to, to make fun of that guy or to not like him when he makes that he makes that audience laugh every night. You know, there's there's something for that.
0: There is. I mean, there's something about uh, the singularity of just being on stage by yourself and it rises or falls around you. Whatever whatever the audience thinks in that moment, it doesn't matter if they laugh the night before or if they laugh the next night, in that moment, it's it's your problem. And I guess that can burrow in a little bit.
3: It sure can. And that's why we I, we found that it's better if I do get into a fight with someone in the audience. Yeah. You know, so if, if there's a conflict, someone gets upset. They say, "You can't say that about Ryerson." I came to see a play. All these things. Um, it 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 releases the tension because mm. the audience goes, "Oh, that's what's going on. That's that's what you know." And usually, they choose my side over the the you know the the rich guy who's pissed off
0: or the heckler. Yeah. 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 And has this show changed, uh, from 2021? So a couple of years ago, September, I think 2021, uh, has it changed over time or was it kind of set at that moment? And that's the show you're doing now.
3: Oh, it's definitely changed. It's it's definitely changed. Things come in and out like bits that, you know, that don't seem relevant or, or move out. And yeah, it's, it's very much a moving, a moving piece.
0: And will it always be that do you think?
3: Um, yeah, I mean, I, I hope that I'll continue to be able to do it. You know, who knows if that's if that's in the cards. But I, I really hope that, that uh, you know, that I'll still get to do it and, and keep working on it and the performance and the writing. It's, it's a tough gig.
0: It is a tough gig. It is a tough gig. And I wonder, you say you're not a stand-up comedian, and, and I'm not suggesting that you are, but I think the the kind of pieces that you do are so specific to you like I'm not going to go see um, uh, someone do George George Carlin stand up, uh, and uh, th- that is him. I want to see him do his stand-up. And I think that your work is so specific to you that I, I I wonder if you see other actors doing your shows or if they are part of your canon, like George Carlin or Lenny Bruce or Richard Pryor's uh, work.
3: Well, I don't. They wouldn't do as you like it. Cause that's because that is very much my my personal yeah. comedic comedic thing. But Huff, for example, the other show that I do, um, no one wants to do it. I mm. don't know. I've, I've asked and we've tried to find actors for it and but uh, it doesn't seem like anyone's too excited about that one.
0: Maybe it's just the the if you look at the reviews for that one, maybe it's the indelible print that you left on it. Yeah. Nobody wants to nobody wants to be, well, it's good. But it's not as good as it was when Cliff did it.
3: <laughs> <laughs> I, I, yeah, maybe. Or maybe they don't want to talk about, you know, youth suicide for, you know, on the road for six weeks or whatever.
0: You're listening to Cliff Cardinal on The Richard Krause Show. Find out more about his new show, The Land Acknowledgement, or as you like it, at mervish.com. Tell me a little bit about confronting the audience in the way that that uh, this show will um what do you hope as they walk out of the theater do you hope that they're leaving changed somehow or are you just hoping to confront them and um jar their complacency or what exactly is it
3: i'm just trying to get their money and 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 have them say yeah that was worth it i'm gonna go see that kid next time too yeah yeah i i don't know about anything I have a perspective I say I take the the funniest perspective that I can I can think of and um yeah if I if I knew anything or what to do I would do that
0: right well I think you know I've been reading about your process you're a songwriter you're an actor you write plays uh I love this idea that you get up and write 2000 words every day and sometimes it takes an hour sometimes it takes 4 hours but it's very much uh you know of the tradition of writers that that I can think of like Elmore Leonard who, you know, was very, uh, word count oriented, but it's the way that you create work is that you, you know, just actually sit down and do the work. There's no other way for it to get done.
3: Yeah. You yeah, you, you got to write to have written, you know, mm. and it, I got that from Stephen King, I believe it was the yeah. Stephen King's book on writing that gave yeah. you like the 2000 words. And if if you write 2000 words or if you write a page or you write your goal, you're a writer. You mm-hmm. know, even if you work in a coffee shop or whatever you do, you're a writer. So.
0: And when you do that every day, are the 2,000 words from day to day, are they connected? Are you working on a longer piece? I guess sometimes maybe you are, but often perhaps it's just a, 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 you know an exercise, a way of, of keeping your mind active.
3: Well, I have to be honest. I haven't been doing that so much in the last little bit. I've got, you know, I've got a bit of a bit of success, you know, because you know, I'm not that I'm not that hungry anymore,
0: right. right. I
3: like to now I like to give about sixty percent i love I love to work. I love to to perform my shows. I love to tour with you know, with my friends. but um really, i'd I'd rather be home having sex with my wife.
0: Are you uh, now working on whatever will be the next thing?
3: My band just released a new song called Suicidal Valentine
0: mm-hmm. that
3: uh, got into the top into the top ten on the indigenous music countdown.
0: Wow, congratulations. Yeah.
3: Thank you very much. Thank you very much. We've been trying to reach an audience with my music for a long time, me and the band, and, and it sounds like we have now.
0: I think it's just persistence, right? Uh, the, the people that I know who are successful and have had their music heard and their plays seen and their films watched and all that kind of thing are people uh, that have been uh, persistent, just the idea of saying no, just isn't within them.
3: Yeah, I think you're right. Talent can can come and go, but Mm. the ability to hear the word no and keep going is is the thing.
0: That was Cliff Cardinal. Find out more about his show, The Land Acknowledgement, or as you like it, at Mervish.com. A big thanks to Cliff for stopping by this afternoon. A big thanks to all my guests. But as always, my biggest thanks goes to you for listening. I'm Richard Krauss. Stay happy, stay safe, stay healthy, stay weird, and we'll talk to you again soon.